turn back with me, if you would, to the letter of First Timothy, the letter of Paul to Timothy, the first letter of Paul to Timothy. We had a little introduction to that letter last week to just kind of orient us to the background and the message and the purpose of the letter. And so today as we jump back in, just a a little bit of a reminder of context for the letter and um, this church that Timothy is at, writing to, and then I want to look at the structure uh, briefly, uh, verses 3 through 5. Uh, One of the things I hope to do, just taking some of our Bible study methods from Wednesday night, is just take a brief moment on Sunday mornings as we jump into a text and make some of those observations that show you how that text holds together, uh, just as a part of uh, helping to encourage us in our reading of Scripture and our study of Scripture. So we'll look at structure, and then we'll look down through uh, that text for what it teaches us this morning. So... A little bit of context, just a reminder, we are in Paul's life and ministry post-house arrest. So remember, Acts ends with him appealing his arrest to Rome. He goes to Rome. He stays there two or three or four years under house arrest. He's been released from that house arrest, and so we're beyond the end of the book of Acts. Uh, And we find here, verse 3, Uh, I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia. So he's left Rome. He's headed to Greece, but he did that by way of Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor. So Rome's a little closer to Greece than it is to Asia Minor. You might wonder why he would go that route. Uh, It was probably easier in some ways to get a ship from Rome to Ephesus. Ephesus was a gateway city to Asia Minor. It's kind of like New York City on our East Coast or San Francisco or Los Angeles on our West Coast. It was the place you would go to get anywhere else in that whole region. He's probably also motivated to go by way of Ephesus first on his third missionary journey. Paul stayed there for a little over three years, and so he has a special place of care and love in his heart for that church. And so he headed there as soon as as he could, it would appear. And then he's going to go back, uh, kind of following the path of his third missionary journey. He's going to go over to Macedonia and check on churches there. And so he's out now of house arrest, and he's out checking on those that he loves and churches that he's had a hand in beginning uh, and that he loves dearly. Uh, We know that Timothy was left in Ephesus, Paul says in verse 3, remain on at Ephesus. And so Timothy was left there. Now, Ephesus is probably the church we know most about in the New Testament. And so this is another significant moment in the life of that church. And so if there's a church um, that in the New Testament that you want to go to and look at the life of that church to draw lessons from, to learn from about the life of the church, you go to the Ephesian church. Uh, Acts 19 is where Paul's third missionary journey is there. We find that very quickly uh, he's in Ephesus there. Uh, He stays in Ephesus for around three years again. And it says there around verse 10, in Acts 19, that from his staying there and teaching there, uh, that the word of the Lord, the gospel, was heard in all of Asia Minor, that the gospel went forth from this church. When you go later in Revelation chapter 2, and you see Jesus talking to the church in Ephesus, uh, and he says, you've lost your first love and you need to repent I think that that's what he's looking back at as the beginning of the life of this church in Ephesus and their first love being the gospel, so much so that it went forth from that church to a whole region and to peoples and to churches in that whole area. And so this is a church that uh, loved Jesus and loved the gospel. Uh, This is a church that is, like we said, in a gateway city. Uh, Ephesus was an extremely prosperous city. Uh, it was uh, a city of culture. 
and the mixing of cultures and ideas and spiritual ideas. Uh, There was all kinds of idolatry there. And so there was a tremendous pressure upon the church to conform to the culture of its day. And that's a dynamic that we know very well. That's a dynamic the church has always existed in. But we live in the most prosperous nation in our day on earth. And a nation of the mixing of cultures and the mixing of ideas and a nation because of all that that exerts tremendous pressure on us to conform to those ideas rather than to hold and stand firm in the gospel. And so Paul, when he writes the letter to the Ephesian church, starts with doctrine. He goes back to old thoughts, the work of the Father from before the foundation of the earth, the work of the Son incarnate for our redemption, the work of the Spirit who seals us and gives us certainty and assurance of our salvation in Jesus Christ. How that work happened, we were once dead, chapter 2, but God in His grace and His mercy gave to us life and the change that worked in us and the change that's bringing between peoples, right? And then how that gospel shapes us. We just recently looked at Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, how the gospel shapes the life of the church and then walking in the light of the gospel, chapter 5. And then ultimately, in the face of all that immense pressure, chapter 6, what do you do? Knowing doctrinal truth and knowing how the gospel has changed us and how it shapes us as a community of faith, you do what? You stand firm together in the faith on those sound doctrines. You walk those truths out in your life. So when we get, you know, Acts 19, the letter to the Ephesians, then you go to Revelation 2, and it's so good to hear Jesus as he speaks there to his church, to the Ephesian church, verses 1 through 8. I know you're holding to sound doctrine, how you test teachers. You discern whether they're true teachers or false. This is a church that ultimately did well at holding to sound doctrine, but they had a moment, they had a time in the life of their church where they needed a reminder about the necessity of sound doctrine for the life of the church and how sound doctrine, the role it plays in persevering faith. Because Paul leaves Timothy here at this time in the life of this church to do just that, to remind them of the necessity of sound doctrine and its role in persevering faith. And so let's look at verses 3 through 5 here. Paul writes there in the NAS, New American Standard Version, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so Paul begins right after he's given his introduction, Paul, an apostle, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. He begins with Timothy with a reminder here, right? As I urged you in the past, when I departed from Macedonia and I urged you to stay at Ephesus, right? I urged you then. And in a sense, I'm urging you again now, as I urged you then, so now I again urge you and continue to urge you, right? As I urged you then, a reminder, then there's the imperative or the command, remain or stay at Ephesus, stay there. And there's a purpose for that, so that tells you that there's a purpose, that you may instruct certain men not 
to teach strange doctrines. And then there's this contrast, verse 5 there. Uh, There's things that arise from those strange doctrines, paying attention to myths and endless genealogy, which ends up in mere speculations. So the result, ultimately, of teaching strange doctrine is mere speculations. But the goal of our instruction is there's a different result from teaching sound doctrine. The goal of our instruction is love. And there's a means uh, through which that love arises from the teaching of sound doctrine. And so I think there's at least three things that we can take from this text uh, as we look down through that and that structure of it and how it holds together. Uh, The first one is that Strange doctrine is a distraction from the gospel. Strange doctrine is a distraction from the gospel. And so Paul here, I urged you, Timothy, when I departed from Macedonia. Uh, there's, this is no small thing. Uh, Paul's not, you want to pick up on the sense and the tone of that right there. It's not a, a simple thing. Hey, Timothy, just stick around a little longer, okay? Like, stick it out a little longer. It's not that tone either. There's, there's still a urgency. Um, there's a sense of the vitalness of Timothy's ministry here to this church. I urged you then. I'm urging you now, even as I write this to you, uh, that I want you to stay there. And it says, I want you to stay there so you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Now, the New American Standard there has instruct. Uh, if you have an ESV or a New King James Virgin, version, you'll have charge there uh, so that you would charge certain men. Now, that's a little different feel, right? To instruct is uh, a little more neutral. Uh, I want you to teach something there. But when you turn to charge, uh, that's a little more urgent, and that's a little more um, earnest and direct, uh, and there's something you need to do, and it's not just teach and hope it sticks. There's a correction that needs to be made in the life of this church. And if you go to the NIV, they really translate this word probably the best uh, when you read the commentaries, that it's really command. That he says to Timothy there, I urged you there to remain at Ephesus so that you would command certain men not to teach strange doctrines. All right? You're not there just to teach it and hope it stops. You're there to tell them, stop it. Right? Because of what comes from those strange doctrines. Because of where, what those strange doctrines are. Uh, he says here, so that you would teach, uh, command them not to teach strange doctrines. Now that's a mouthful that comes from one word in the Greek. Um, Paul has this penchant for taking words and parts of words and just putting them together to convey the thought uh, that he's conveying. And so he does have one word there that's not, and then it's another word that's basically to teach, but it's it's heterodidascaline, and so the didasco is teach. So don't teach, and then hetero, that prefix, is different or other. And so the content of the apostles' teaching is always what? What's all, who, who is the center and the object always of an apostle's teaching, of Paul's teaching? It's always Jesus. And he's not just talking just, just about Jesus. He's teaching doctrine about Jesus. Jesus is eternal God, the Son of God. Jesus who was perfect righteousness. Jesus who came because of the promise of God to save us from sin. And he's the Messiah. Let me show you from the Old Testament, the scriptures, who the Messiah was and the promises of Messiah. 
and how we can confirm that Jesus was the Messiah and then what he did for us by dying on the cross. Let me show you from the Old Testament sacrifices why the sacrificial system All of it was to point us to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away our sins and the sins of the world. His teaching was always doctrinal. And so he can say, don't teach something other or different. And the best translation of that is don't teach strange or different or other or unsound doctrine. Right? He says, command them not to teach unsound doctrine, uh, that they don't have uh, their source in truth and scripture because it's other, it's something else. It comes from uh, bringing other ideas into scripture or it just comes from things outside of scripture. And so he says, uh, not to teach strange doctrines, right? different ideas, things that are not in or from Scripture, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. One of the things we know about Judaism itself, and there's a little bit of a Judaizing strain here in what Paul is dealing with in this church, is that there were often myths or legends, stories. They're not a part of Scripture, but they became a part of tradition and then they became spiritually significant, and then we begin to build our lives upon spiritual truths from those stories. And they're not even from Scripture. They're just myths or fables or legends or a part of a mythology, but it has nothing to do or very little to do with Scripture. And so we have these myths and endless genealogies as people wrestle with what this is. It, it looks as if what would happen is uh, you would, much like we like to do, if you want to look at a, an example or an exemplar of the faith, right? you go to the Old Testament, you look at Moses or Joseph or Abraham or David, right? Uh, but along with the teaching about those guys' lives were their pedigrees, their genealogies. And there are points and places in there where it seems like someone's name is significant, But you could take that name and over-allegorize and over-spiritualize what that means. And then now you're building a system of truth out of what you think the name means. Or have you ever seen in Judaism the penchant or the, the tendency to count the number that goes with the letter? We've all seen that, right? And then because of what the numbers of the letters are that means this, some kind of a numerology, right? We're taking spiritual truths because of the numbers of the letters that are in the text. And you take that to ex- its extreme, not, well, I say not too long ago. It's probably 20 years ago now. It's a good sign I'm getting old. You know, that was probably in college. And not just the other day this happened. Uh, you know, the Bible code that came out. You know, and you have the text and you roll the scrolls out and you do like uh, word searches on it. You can go up and down and left and right and diagonal this way and that way. And you find truth embedded in the text. Right? There's a Bible code in there. It's that kind of thinking, this endless attention to genealogies. And so by not taking the, the truth of Scripture by injecting outside ideas. By the way, does that ever happen today still, to just inject ideas from our culture into the text? By taking myth and story, uh, by twisting and allegorizing and spiritualizing things the way they shouldn't be, the end result of this is mere speculation. Mere speculation, he says. Now, you've ended somewhere. There's no substance uh, to it. It's just mere speculation. There's no truth there. There's no substance there. There's nothing really objectively to hang on to there. But it sure can be a lot of fun to talk about, can it? Uh, Think about in our day, uh, every time we've had a blood moon in the last... 18 months, what has happened on the internet, right? 
That night, that's the day. Jesus is coming back. Regardless that he says no man knows the day or the time. Right? That's the day. And uh, how many websites there are out there today to take current events and just press that on top of revelation and prophecy, right? And just bending and mashing scripture to fit a narrative because it, it's fascinating. It, it engages the mind. What if? Might be. Oh man, could you imagine? Right? And all of a sudden you're out there in conspiracy land. You know anybody that's just so consumed with conspiracy, be it religious or political, that there's no foundation any longer in reality? Right? We've, we've all seen that. And that's what happens. That's what's happening here. We've departed from truth and we've ended somewhere where there is no objective truth whatsoever. It's just mere speculation. There's nothing solid there. And because of that, it's a distraction then to the gospel. He says it's, uh, it gives rise to mere speculation rather than the furthering of the administration of God, which is by faith. Now that can be somewhat of a vague statement by Paul. What does he mean by that? Uh, So there's a contrast there. The end result of this attention to myth and genealogy, the, the result of speculation, has taken you away from furthering the administration of God. Now that's a a phrase that talks about how God is managing things. It's the word that we get the word economy from. Oikonomia, right? It's the word that's the idea of the household manager or the steward of a household, like Joseph became uh, in Egypt for Pharaoh, managing the affairs of the nation under and for his master, right? How God is, has, what he has purposed, right? Salvation, uh, that he's promised that, that there, that will come about in the fullness of time, and then how he's going about even today fulfilling that promise. How God is sovereignly and providentially at work in all of life's circumstances, and not just in your life and mine, but the life of communities and nations and continents and the world to bring about his great purpose. That's what that is. It's furthering the administration of God that centers on the promise and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It's the gospel, right? Which is by, he says, faith. It's by faith. And by that, it's a subtle but a beautiful turn away from these vapid, empty, mere speculations that have no objectivity or objective truth in them. It's a turn back to doctrine and truth. The gospel of God and how he carries that out and who he carries that out in, it's by faith. That's not just the feeling of faith, right? That's by belief. And to believe, you have to believe in something or in someone. And so now you're turning back to what's true, that there is a God in heaven who is holy and pure and good. He's always good. And we begin to look at his goodness. We see in us, we thought we were good. We start to say, we're not so good. We're not as good as that good. But as we continue to read scripture and learn about God and learn about ourselves, we come to a place where we say, I'm not good at all. And because of that, I need a savior. And here's the savior. And here's who he is. And here's what he did for me. And here's his life for me and his death for me and his resurrection for me. And he said, he'd come back for me. But he said he'd never leave me or forsake me and he'd send someone to be with me. And so now the spirit is now with me and always another comforter. There's solid truths that you believe in, that you know, and then you trust, and then you entrust yourself to. 
And so this administration of God, his purpose and the fulfilling of it is something that is by faith, that's grounded in objective, real truths that we can, as we say, hang our hats on, right? That that idea that you almost don't even have to think about it. You walk in the door, you set down your bag and you go like that. It's, It's just habitual. The hook is there and you know it's there and it's going to catch your hat. That that's truth for us, right? All teaching at the end of the day is doctrinal. All of it is, right? That's why Paul can say, don't teach something different. And he means don't teach strange doctrines. All teaching is at the end of the day centered on Jesus Christ. Uh, it's one of the most helpful things, uh, one of the most beautiful things when you look at Scripture as the, the whole thing. You know, Genesis 1 and 2, here's how it was created to be. Revelation 21 and 22, here's what it one day will be. I'm going to flip those over for you so you're not reading backwards. All right, Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, right? Uh, that all things were created good. And man was rightly related with God as creator. And then man fell into sin. But one day, all things will be reconciled to God correctly again through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And so from between those, the front and the back, right, you are anticipating and looking forward to Christ and the cross. And then the Gospels, He's being made known or manifested. The the Messiah, the Savior, is made known. He's manifested. And you see Him be and become the Savior of the world and save us from our sins. And then you go to the book of Acts and you watch the gospel expand from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then in all the letters and the rest of the New Testament, we're explaining the significance of who Christ is and what he's done for us. That anticipation, manifestation, expansion, explanation of the gospel and its eventual culmination to make things in the future how they had been created to be. That's the Bible. And it all centers on Jesus Christ. All of our teaching, all of our study, all of our reading should be looking for the truths associated with the gospel. Not not first with our day, not first with our lives. What does it say to us is the question about who God is and who we are. Salvation, right? And how that occurred and the effects of that in our life. What are those eternal truths and where are they in that text right and then where else are those truths taught those particular truths in scripture because scripture teaches scripture and then when we have a firm grasp on those eternal truths from the text then we ask ourselves how does that affect me today in terms of how I think what I feel what I do what I say Right? That's, that's what teaching is to look like in our study and our reading of Scripture. And so these strange doctrines are just distractions from that. They end in mere speculations rather than a gospel-centered teaching of the faith, verse 4. And so we have a different goal when we teach. It's not to end with mere speculations, these vapid, empty things. But verse 5, the goal of our instruction is literally in a word, what? Love. The goal of our instruction is love. The goal of our teaching is love. That when our reading of Scripture, when our study of Scripture, when our teaching and preaching on Scripture is centered on God's ultimate purpose to honor Himself, when it's centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's centered on Christ, right? 
that it will of necessity and just naturally produce within us love, right? That it, that those truths that impart life to us, that nourish us, that at the end of their working in us, they bear and beget within us love. And that's that word love, agape. We've heard that defined several times, but it's always worth mentioning again. That, that's not emotional love or passionate love. It's not even friendly love. Like, yeah, I like you, so I love you, right? Uh, that's, it's love that is a choice of will. That's God's love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ, God manifested or made known His love for us in that Christ died for us. That God chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. That God, not for anything in us, because we hated Him, right? We rejected Him but that God himself would set the choice of his love on you and on me, in spite of me. And then, not just that he said he would love us, but he acted on it, right? That Jesus, as God, loved us from before the foundation of the world and then said, I will go and be their Savior. And the father said, I will send my son to die for them. And he acted in that love. That's agape love. That's the love of God for us. That the goal of our instruction is love. That it's a love for God and a love for others. What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Speaking of putting in there things that are not in there, right? God tells you to love yourself. There's no command in that verse for you to love yourself, right? Our culture tells you you need to love yourself, and that's the basis for all happiness. You can't love yourself, you can't be happy. Right? And now we inject that in the text. You are to love the Lord your God who has been so gracious and merciful to you and who loved you in Christ. And you are to love others as yourself because we already love ourselves. That's the as yourself is. You, you already love yourself. There's no problems there. You love yourself. Right? Above all others. The struggle right, is for us to change that so that we love him and we love others more than ourselves. Consider others better than yourself, right? That won't happen without sound doctrine and good teaching and right and sound doctrine. And so note, note that connection there. The goal of our instruction is love. We, we teach doctrine so that it begets love in us, right? We also do this with this. With doctrine, is just, it's just dry, okay? We say that for different reasons. We may struggle to read. We don't like the reading that comes with it, right? Uh, we don't want to learn. Or more accurately, for me, early on in my life, I didn't want my thinking to be challenged because that upset my worldview, That's an uncomfortable place to be in. I don't want parts of the bricks in my wall to be ripped out and replaced, right? I don't want my foundations of my thinking to be torn up and rebuilt, right? It's an uncomfortable process, all right? It may be, well, it's it's just academic, right? We just go love people, but you can't get around this verse that says the goal of our instruction is love. Love comes from Sound doctrine, right? Love comes from sound doctrine. It's from knowing God. I think it's A.W. Tozer reading him and saying, just just, you look at who God is to know who you are. You can't even, we can't even know ourselves correctly without looking at who God is to know who he is and then know 
who we are, right? And that's the beginning of any right reality. Knowing God, then knowing ourselves is the very beginning of any real understanding of the reality of life in the presence of holy God. So love is innately and intimately, it comes from sound doctrine. And it shouldn't really surprise us a lot. Uh, this connection just came to mind as I was thinking about it this week. It's, it's the Spirit of God, Romans tells us, who was poured out in our heart. It's the Spirit of God who pours out in our heart the love of God. And when we exposit that and try to understand what that phrase means, it means that the Spirit of God who's poured out in us and is pouring out in us, given to us, pours out in us love from God that we would know God's love for us and pours out in us our love for God, right? He pours into us the love of God that we would know His love and our love for God. But it's that same Spirit over in 1 Corinthians that makes known to us even the deep mysteries of God. And it's that same Spirit that as we read and study the Word, and He makes known doctrine and truth to us. Right? He makes known to us God's truths. And there's just, if you spend time reading Scripture, you know this. If you get away from Scripture and you come back, just reading Scripture brings a certain life to us because we again are hearing and thinking about the truths of God. And when you study those truths systematically, there's just a, a depth of wonder and awe, and a deepening sense of God's mercy to us that you can't get past. I, I love that you watch Paul in the course of his writing say, yep, I'm a sinner. And yep, I sinned badly. I'm a bad sinner. And then towards the end of his writings, he throws into one of his writings, I'm the what? The chief of sinners. I'm the worst one of them all. Isn't that an odd thing? One who knows Scripture so deeply it didn't make him feel better about who he was in himself. It told him who he was. And all it did was deepen his sense of wonder and his knowledge of the mercy of God in his life and the grace of God to him. And that gave him life. It made him love God. And so the goal of our instruction is love. And we'll end quickly with this. He says, by what? The goal of our instruction is love. Love comes from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now we are teaching sound doctrine, and our goal is love, but how does sound doctrine help us arrive there? By means of, or from, or through a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And we've touched on it along the way, but it, and these kind of all hang together, but there's also a logical order to them that it really begins with purifying the heart, a pure heart. And I love that he begins right there. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. When he writes Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, be ye not conformed you know, to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. And he could have started there. But he goes directly to the heart right here, from a pure heart, right? Uh, that the, We take in teaching good, sound doctrine, and it comes into our mind, and we wrestle with it there. But ultimately, it lands where? On our heart. That it affects our heart. Uh, that it's in the heart where we... Uh, have our feelings, but more biblically speaking, we have what we call our affections or those things that we, we delight in, right? That as we go through our day and we are about to do something and we say to ourselves, ah, I know that's not right. You had that moment? And then what do you do? You do it anyway, right? Why, would, why do we do that? You did that just this morning, didn't you? On the way, no, yesterday? I don't know. I'm not asking you to raise hands, right? That struggle with sin in us, 
Uh, it's been said that, that we will act on what we most delight in. Right? We will act on what we most delight in. Where our affections really are, that's what we're going to go do. Right? Where our affections are, that's what we're going to do. That when we know we're faced with a choice, I can do this and that will honor and glorify God, or I can do this. And I know it's not right. Or I know at the very least, I could go do this, which is a good thing to do, and I could do this, which may not be a bad thing to do, but I know it's all about me, right? And you know you're wrestling with that choice in your mind, that we will in that moment do what we most delight in. And so we begin to see how sound doctrine, the purity and the holiness and the goodness of God and His grace and His mercy to us, our wrestling with sin within our lives, our continual repentance from sin because of that, how that begins to change and shape our affections. If I'm in my word, reading, studying, if I am with you talking about Scripture and wrestling with theological truths and how they work in our lives, my heart is being shaped by the real and the objective truths of God, doctrines of Scripture. And then when those moments come and I'm away from you and I'm by myself and I have that choice to make, I'm more likely to look in that moment and go, God, I love you. Give me strength and grace. And you, you choose to honor him. We all know that dynamic. When you're away from the word and you're away from the fellowship of the church and you're away from those discussions and wrestling with the truths of the faith, you start doing what you want to do. And you remember, it's the heart that was hostile to God and rebellion and rejection to God. It was that heart, Ephesians 2, that did whatever it thought was right and whatever felt right to it and seemed right to it. And so if at any point we are as believers starting to go back into that pattern, that's giving way to sin in our lives rather than killing sin in our lives and delighting ourselves in a God who has loved us and been so merciful to us. All right? It's doctrine that goes in to us. That's why Paul was saying in 2 Timothy, right, that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, just telling us what's right. And in that teaching, it begins to reprove us. Here's where there's error in your life. And then it corrects us. Here's how to straighten that out. And then it trains us for righteousness. Here's how you walk in it. That we need those truths of Scripture to do that for us. When that happens... When Scripture's changing our hearts, when doctrine changes how we think, what we delight in, it works itself out in our life. A pure heart and a good conscience. Romans 2, 14 and 15 will tell us that the conscience is that which bears witness against us. Right? As a Christian, you are never given the ability to make that choice to do what you want and what you know is wrong, and be like, oh, that was awesome. Let's do that again, right? That's God's grace to us. You have a spirit-shaped, doctrinally informed conscience now that will at times bear witness against you. Oh, it always bears witness, but alter alternately it says they're uh, accusing you or defending you. And when you make those choices, you know we sh I shouldn't make. Conviction's there every time. You're never settled. You're never at peace, ever. Right? Unless you do it so long and so much, your conscience is seared. But even then, you're not happy. Scripture talked about it being seared. It's just numb. And you're in neutral. And we've known the joys of the Lord, and that is no happy place to be. And so knowing sound doctrine, and letting it have its work in us produces within us a good conscience. I'm hearing it. I'm delighting in the Lord. I'm choosing to delight in Him. My affections now are increasing for Him and not for the things that are of the world or in the world. I'm choosing uh, to love Him and to love others, not myself, so that my conscience, biblically informed and spirit-informed, now doesn't accuse me, but rather defends me and encourages me, right? And so now I have a good conscience. I can lay my head on my pillow at night 
and comfortably and quietly go to sleep. And I can get up for my next day looking forward to what is going to happen tomorrow. I'm not looking in the rearview mirror about everything that I've done, right? I'm freed to walk in Christ. I have a good conscience. And lastly, it says a sincere faith. I was hoping this was that word. I, I love that illustration Tommy uses of, you know, the jar in the market, uh, you know, holding it up to the light and seeing that it has no cracks in it and it has integrity, right? That's not this one here. So I didn't get to use that one today. Right? The word there literally is unhypocritical. That's what sincere means. They're translating a word that means that, that literally translated would be unhypocritical, saying that it's sincere. In other words, you're not saying, I love Jesus, Right? And God is real and God is true and I love Christ and then believing in and teaching and living any other way but that. That's hypocrisy. Right? That's, that's offensive to God. And it should be offensive to us. So much so that we're concerned for the name of God and for the good conscience and the purity of hearts for one another. We should never allow each other to walk like that as a community of faith, right? Unhypocritical. We say we believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior. There are certain foundational, irrevocable truths that are connected with who He is. And those truths shape who we are and how we live. And if that's true, we're not hypocritical, right? We are sincere in our faith. Our profession and our faith go together. Our life matches with what we say. And so that's how doctrine itself, our instruction, our teaching that's centered on Christ, that's full of doctrinal truths and some of them deep and some of them difficult, all of them beautiful, how those produce in us love because they change our hearts from hostility and rebellion to our affections being in Him. And they give us a good conscience. And now we have a sincere faith. And so now our lives, the activity of our lives are what? Loving God and loving others. Because it's no longer about what feels right and seems right to me, what I want, or just about me, period. That's been changed and is being changed in my life. And so that's why these things, there is a, a logical progression there, but it's also something that just exists all at the same time because you and I both know there's certain places God goes to work in me and in you. There's places He's already changed in my heart and my life. There's already ways in which I love Him and I love others, but I'm not yet there. And so He's still working on me there. And so I think often of Psalm 19, where the psalmist ends that, that psalm, which, which not surprisingly then starts with the beauty of the Word of God. And it's sweeter to me than honeycomb, right? And he ends with, who can discern his errors? I can't discern my faults. So show me those faults, right? And acquit me even, he says, forgive me of my hidden faults, my hidden sin. And then keep me from presumptuous or willful sin. And that's what we do. We come to his word that's sweeter to us than anything else. And then we ask as we find his truth in the word, God, forgive me for sins I don't know I commit. Help me understand sins that I didn't know I was committing. And keep me from the sins that I want to commit so that my life, he says, would be pleasing to you. That's language of sacrifice. That my life would be an offering that's pleasing unto you, O Lord, my God. And that's why we say often, go to your word. That's also why we say often, do it together. You need the fellowship of the body. Because I need to hear what God's teaching you. Because often... It's in what I hear one of you saying, I've been reading and God showed me this. And I go, oh no, I do that too, right? How much more we grow and change.
because we're in the fellowship of the body wrestling with the word of God. That I need you and you need me. We need each other for this. God's word and his truths to change us so that we walk in love. That's the, the role of sound doctrine and teaching in our life and the perseverance of our faith that we would not uh, walk in the flesh, but that we walk in the love of Jesus Christ together. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and its truths. God, in a day that uh, is much like many days, there's so many competing truths uh, and so many that present well and sound good. God, give us your people the ability to go to your word and to read it, God, for your spirit to teach us. God, for us to gather together and to share your word uh, until we all attain, as Ephesians says, to the unity of the faith. Uh, God, that would bind our hearts together and that we would continually be uh, instructed so that we change in our thinking until we are ever increasingly coming to a unity of faith for your, your scripture teaches one Lord and one faith, one truth from one holy God. And it's that that arms us and constrains us and keeps us and guards us and guides us so that we can stand firm in the faith, that we can walk in the faith, and that we can proclaim the faith with Jesus Christ, uh, the Savior, as the object of our faith. And God, that you then might be made known through your people to the world. And just as through this church, God, would it be true from our church, God, from your churches, from your church, that the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ would go forth to all and fill in the blank, all of Decatur, all of Wise County, all of Texas, all of our nation, all of North America and South America, God, for all of the world, God, until the day comes that Jesus Christ comes back, your people submit to your truth and walk in it and love you. And we go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We begin at home and we go out everywhere that you call us. And so send us, O oh Lord, to those places with your word, your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.